Stay hungry, stay foolish. Now on the Innovation Show, we welcome Andrew Melchior, CEO and founder of Third Space Agency, thirdspace.co. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Pleasure to be here, Aiden. We were having a chat, and, and I was telling you that I, I did my research on you and your background. I always found it so interesting that when you look at people who are succeeding in the world today, that they're multidisciplined or multi-experienced in different realms and different places. And you have that in that you're a musician, a technologist, and but you've you've brought all those different collected dots and connected them in a really interesting way. So it's great to talk to you, and I'd love to hear your background. Well, thanks, Aidan. I think it's a particular kind of ADHD has brought me here. It started a while ago. I mean, I was born in West Germany. My mother used to work for the armed forces over there, and um, uh, she settled down with a German guy, uh, my dad. And um, um, very early on, I was uh, into music. Uh, my grandfather on my German side played me very early on his record collection of these amazing Deutsche Grammophone albums um, of things like uh, Carrion, you know, conducting Beethoven. And I remember at that time being first aware of abstract thought. Music was the first thing that really gave me abstract thought. So pedaled through my teens, became a keyboard player, pianist, uh, was classically trained. I worked with a bunch of bands, including a band called Elbow, who are quite well known these days, uh, in my early days. Um, and then one way or another, I managed to find myself at the cusp of this internet revolution that happened in the 90s, I, right place, right time. And I was uh, sat at Manchester University wondering what to do. Um, and uh, Tim Berners-Lee had had the good taste to invent the World Wide Web. Um, so I sat on the computers at Manchester University and figured out a few things about what I wanted to do next. And um, I was at the time, I was also experimenting building computers because I was in the studio environment and people were just starting to record using MIDI and digital recording devices. So all these things kind of converged and um, uh, one way or another, it was kind of like a oh, lucky man really. I ended up in London working for EMI Records. Um, they were in desperate need of people who could understand this new medium. And so they rolled me and a bunch of my friends out in front of people like Radiohead and Coldplay and David Bowie. And we were the guys and the girls who were basically there to do the thing that was the internet, which was a good opportunity really. My first real salvo into multimedia because we got to do a bunch of new things for the first time, like uh, streaming videos, understanding what digital music was going to be in the future, and uh, and trying to figure out how to work with things like mobile phones. Uh, one of the first real mobile phone downloads uh, uh, opportunities was with Bowie. He was one of the first artists to do a polyphonic ringtone, um, and he was we worked together to basically promote a bunch of his ideas in mobile space as well as web space. Brilliant. And were those ideas coming as a kind of a collaboration between you and the artist, or were you guys coming up with the art ideas, bringing them to the artist? I think a bit of both, because especially artists like David Bowie is very generous with um, creativity. He was a, he was a, um, a technocrat. He loved technology. He loved his Apple Mac, and he loved uh, making music with electronics. Um, but he was also a promoter of people with ideas, because he I think he was you know he was keen for an eye for the main opportunity and. I think uh, when when I was uh, just in my mid twenties, uh, I was just sat there and I was so inspired by the chance of actually being able to work with him. And, and um, I just used to rattle off these mad emails uh, about what we could do, what we could try, you know. And he would come back and go, "Yes, we could try that," or "No, definitely don't do that," you know. And it was so there was some dynamism there. And 
I think the labels at the time were all uh, sort of swamped with this idea of the threat of the internet, a bit like these days as a threat of AI. Um, but really, I always felt these things were an opportunity, not, not a threat. You mentioned Radiohead as well, David, and they always struck me as a band who were trying new things and tinkering with technology. And you, I mean, it came across in their music and their live sets. But did you see that from them from an early stage? They would do cute things like glue the headphones into new Sony MP3 players and then give them to journalists to listen to to try and avoid piracy and, and cute stuff like that. You know, they were into hacking. I remember really early on that they just seemed to want to hack things. And the idea of a, a playback party turned into this bizarre scenario where you handed out these players that were super glued together with the headphones because nobody would then be able to copy the uh, the, the audio. Brilliant. Um, so it was, it was cute. I mean, I think uh, going back to that with Bowie, we, we did a bunch of things for the first time together, like digital cinema. He was one of the first artists to do a live simultaneous broadcast in 5.1 stereo from the old uh, uh, Riverside Studios in London. And we set that up with the Odeon Cinema and Regal Cinemas in North America. And you were able to rock up to the cinema and uh, you sat in front of the screen and there was Mr. Bowie playing a bunch of songs live, you know, larger than you like. And he was one of the first real to, artists really to play with that as a medium, which has now turned into this operatic and theatrical thing at cinemas. But he was one of the first to do it with contemporary music. Yeah, and, and you, you made a, a huge jump then as well. I mean, obviously you were, you were born into the technology and you, you grew as it grew. And I was thinking about this. I was thinking how artists struggle to make money from actual music sales from product sales essentially yeah. now and that they've gone very wide on experience and that you have absolutely nailed it with some of those experiences with the artists you're working with like bjork at the moment well i think the idea of presence is important and i think this is you know we, we can leap around but the idea of where you are when, when music when you play music uh I was always fascinated by when I was a kid playing piano music. When I played sheet music and I was playing Beethoven or Mozart, something, I thought I used to be fascinated by this idea that they were still in the room with me. So there was this part of their brain that had been dead for their biological body, been dead for 200 years. But these dots on paper, this mechanical reproduction of some form of their music meant that you could almost manifest them in the room with you while, while playing the piano. And I, and I think that's really interesting because this conceptual idea of spaces and third spaces and fourth spaces and the, and the things that we can talk about. Uh, where are you? Where where are we right now? We're on, you know, this digital medium and we're having a conversation, but there's a, there's this intermediate layer and where where you are when that is happening is, is very interesting. And um, the, the modern era and what Bjork is doing and a bunch of artists play around with the broadcast tech, you know, is, is really challenging our perceptions of what presence is and, and what it is to be present and, and how are you present? You know, is it, is it physicality? Is it your intellectual being making sounds. And uh, so I, I think um, we, we are, uh, you know, and especially now in this new holographic medium, new augmented realities and virtual realities that are being uh, experimented with, they're putting us all in these new wrappers of, well, what does it mean to be present? What, what am I really doing? You know, beyond the eyes and the ears, uh, uh, how are we communing in this kind of electrically powered sort of other space? Yeah, and it, re it really gives you an opportunity to, like I was going to say touch the flesh, but touch the virtual flesh in that, like I love I loved this idea, you, need, you know these platforms where you can collaborate with different artists together and create a track or whatever, yeah. but this is almost getting, you know, you will have Bjork standing beside you doing a vocal or whatever, you, you, like there's a real leap towards 
this kind of world where it's actually the artist is coming to you rather than you have to go to the event and artists like Bjork and I know we'll maybe we'll talk about Massive Attack in a few minutes but those kind of artists are working with you to create those experiences. My role is always seems to have been to join the dots between creative minds and scientific minds. I think from being a child and having to learn German and English and translate for my grandparents <laughs> who were sat in the same room, uh, I, I realized my, my role seems to be in a lot of ways is to facilitate a dialogue between these different sides of the brain um, with other people. And um and I think, uh, I think you know, to manifest Bjork's vision into VR, to be able to understand how a performer wants to connect with his audience or her audience is, um, is, is the kind of goal. And, and then being able to translate those, those, those creative and sort of esoteric gut ideas into a technical execution is the bit that I get excited about where I uh, join the dots when I can, you know. Bjork was very interesting just because of the way of being able to communicate with her fans. And we've had extraordinary feedback from people when this this touring show, this Bjork digital show, where, you know, people have come out of the VR experience and gone, oh my God, it's it's like FaceTiming Bjork, you know? And um, and then we've gone one layer even further and we've created these um, volumetric models of her, these these 3D uh, depth-based models of her. And uh, in those experiences, which are the kind of more advanced VR uh, versions um, of playback, um, you know, they're able to stand and walk around her. And, and, and for, for a very private and very shy artist she's not you know she's definitely not in your face when you meet her as a person she's um she, it's interesting to be able to create this connection uh, for, for her fans obviously it doesn't run both ways at the moment this is the interesting that i think will come next and this is one thing bowie said as well which he thought the internet was amazing because for years he'd be doing one to many he'd be playing a gig and it was me to play to everyone and then suddenly the internet allowed you to do one to one and, and have that relationship. I think what will come next, and it'll be very interesting for artists, will be how they will be able to, in some ways, transmit themselves maybe as much into your front room as uh, they're transmitting themselves through the front of a stage in a large venue. And the idea of being able to do micro and macro, I think, is going to be very interesting from a performance uh, basis. Bjork Digital is the project. And could you tell our audience a little bit about that and, and how it came about even? Yeah, so um, I, I first uh, started working her uh, with her. Um, I started, first started working with Bjork um, two thousand. I think it was two thousand thirteen. We started discussing ideas uh, um, around three sixty um, cinema, which is some people call three sixty cinema VR, um, cinematic VR, virtual reality. Um, and we were lucky enough at the end of her show at the Museum of Modern Art in New York uh, to be uh, in a position to uh, film and uh, playback a, a performance she made of her track Stone Milker. Stone Milker was the one of the songs off her album uh, Ves- uh, Volnicura, um, uh, which is the last studio album she's released. Um, and she basically got onto a beach with an experimental camera, a 360 camera, with her director Andy Wang, and um, very punk rock of her really, uh, no artifice beyond this camera device, um, and placed it on the beach where she'd actually originally come up with the idea of the song, um, and uh, Andy and uh, the producer there just basically pressed play, uh, record, and uh, ran off behind the rocks because there's nowhere to hide in 360. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, she performed the song and she did multiple takes and uh, turned it into this very moving and still one of my favourite uh, pieces, uh, Stone Milker, where um, you know the individual splits into two and then to three, and then um, you have these multiple personas of her sort of literally dancing around you, 
pacing around you and singing to you. Um, and we did a spatial audio mix with a bunch of clever guys I know from the BBC who are working in binaural audio um, um, for radio, um, uh, which were, was also able to create the illusion of her audio and her voice moving around you in this 360. Um, so that singular project of Stone Milker then uh, really got her interest and she started developing a plan to create a virtual reality piece to accompany each of her songs on this little Liqueur album. Um, and so Bjork Digital kind of grew out of the, the MoMA exhibit, uh, an interest in um, uh, VR, uh, but also uh, joining together her previous technological ambition, which is um, the, the album Biophilia was one of the very first app app-based albums you're, you're still able to oh, download yeah that's great so each song has got an app um and then um, we also connected the um the cinema so there's also a cinematic element to this where we show uh sort of 30 years worth of bjork videos in a standard sort of 5.1 cinema space um and uh, and slowly but surely this idea sort of gained momentum and and what happened was last year in um, sydney as part of the Vivid Festival, uh, which is this sort of an, uh, art and entertainment and technology festival happens every year in Sydney, Australia, uh, we launched Bjork Digital. And we had, um, at the time, uh, we only had two uh, virtual reality experiences. We had the Stone Milker experience that she'd made, um, and we also uh, had um, a piece uh, called Not Get, um, uh, which is by the directors Warren Dupree's and Nick Thornton-Jones. Um, and uh, as each city on the tour has kind of evoked itself, so we went from Sydney to Tokyo, uh, and then we went from Tokyo to London to Somerset House, and then we went to uh, Montreal to the Phi Centre, and then we went to Reykjavik, back to her uh, country of origin, obviously. Um, each time we've um, gone to a new city, she added uh, another piece. So um, uh, in the process of the tour, she was also working with directors and, and digital artists and uh, producers to develop these... Um, uh, immersive narratives around the the Volnikura album. So this has become a piece of work that's kind of evolved and then physically manifested itself to the fans and visitors around the world as she's moved it around the planet, which I, th I think is a very illuminated way of trying to engage uh, a young and a modern and a technically advanced audience um, to the, the the opportunities afforded by these new mediums. You know? I love what you've done because and, and Bjork because there's a lot of sheep dip innovation or sheep dip VR, like where you get brands just doing it because it's the thing that everybody's doing. But you, you with your agency and your projects have actually used them in the right sense, in the right way. And like Bjork has always pushed the boundaries with music. Now she's pushing the boundaries with you with music engagement, I suppose. And as you said, with an audience who understands that now, in, instead of, you know, the way maybe five years ago, somebody might do something or, or they might go, oh, we need to be social on social media at a board meeting. And then yes. everybody reacts and they go, oh, we need to be on everything. We need to be on Bebo and we need to be on Twitter. And, and it's, <laughs> it's a crap experience. There's no, there's no, there's nobody standing up and going, hey, wait a second. Why, why are we doing this? And, and I love that, like from reading about you and the work you do, you uncover a reason first, and then you go and build it. Yeah, I, I agree, because I think that the philosophy of, uh, of why, um, just that simple question, should be asked often in life, I mean, generally, you know? Um, and I think uh, from an artist's point of view, the work comes first, and I think the extravagance and, and extrapolation of technology should always be seen as an assistance 
to telling the story, not replacing the story. And, and definitely that's been Bjork's proviso. It's never been uh, purely for tech, for tech's sake. Um, in some ways, uh, she's quite an interesting character through the fact that um, there's a, a there's a there's a there's a, a pr- appreciation and and um, an excitement about technology, but there's also a line that gets drawn whereby there has to be a natural antidote to that. So there's a, a physical manifest, there's a there's a, a, a reclaiming of a natural uh, language and a natural. Uh, execution. Uh, one of the reasons I know she works with Andy Wang, uh, Andrew Wang, Andrew Thomas Wang, his, his official title, uh, the director, is because Andrew doesn't just work in CGI um, as a director, which was very on vogue. He also makes physical models and goes to actual locations and is very visceral in the way he uh, works with an artist to to, to create the the, the visual. Uh, uh, you know, representation of their music, um, and I think it's interesting because it's also sort of synonymous with the whole problems with the Star Wars prequels. You know, they were all too CGI, too much green screen. The actors couldn't relate to the narrative. It was it was all too conceptual. Um, and then there was obviously now the, the reboot has come back to making props and putting actors in you know um, monster suits and having actual physical connection with things. And I think. Uh, I think that's a very interesting tale of our times is technology has kind of run amok and we've gone as far as we can, as far as we can. And then uh, there's come a point where I think almost like the choke chain effect where we've had to then step back and go, okay, well, we've removed all these things and replaced them. Maybe we need to put some of the original ways of storytelling back into the mix. Yeah, it's so true. And and, and I think that's, you, you hear a lot about storytelling and brands telling a better story, etc. And that's why I think like, because, without the story these are all just touch points now i I often think of what you said there about you know bjork is like the core thing is the story or the music the the actual original form is still the core thing it's just like like a slice it's it's like a pie chart it's just actually been fragmented lots of more ways that you reach people with yeah, I think, I think my mother, uh, God rest her soul, uh, was always very humorous uh, with me because I was into synthesizers and making music with, you know, uh, computers very early on. And um, I was I was a nerd. I was basically, you know, a boy who played keyboards and in bands. And, and But she always said to me, Andrew, always have up your sleeve the capacity to play something when the electricity gets turned off, which is a great um, a great lesson to me because the, the analogue of what I do is a musician as a pianist I ended up playing harmonium and glockenspiel and and uh, and uh, you know and I even badly play the acoustic guitar but it, it, you know that campfire moment the real the real the real politic of a musician is is not just having the artifice of synthesizers and computers and you know augmented this and this and the other there's also the physical requirement to connect with a wobbling air in a you know, maybe with a piece of wood and some string and some resonance. Um, so I, I don't forget those things. I think those are good. It's a good uh, bedrock uh, mm. to, to always keep it real, but to use technology when it does actually add and not just for its own sake. Yeah, and, and you've you've touched on something there. So so keeping it real, but but actually going to where it's going. So so let's 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 glimpse a little bit into the future because you've you've obviously. You've been close to Magic Leap. Uh, you've been close to the cutting edge. You, you're working in the cutting edge of of where VRA or MR everything is going. So, what 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 do you see from a human perspective? Some some immediate next steps, I suppose, from using these technologies. I think um, it's going to be interesting. The, uh, 
because of my own uh, uh, affliction <laughs> with wanting to understand a broad, a broad consensus of things, is um, it's very obvious to me that computers are the, the way we communicate with um, the electronics and the way we now communicate to each other. The, the means of doing that is quite old-fashioned. A keyboard and a mouse. Um, you know, uh, Doug Engelbart, very famously amazing man, Doug Engelbart. If you don't know him, you should Google him. Uh, he did a, a great uh, video in 1968, Stanford, called The Mother of All Demos. And um, in that, Doug Engelbart, who invented the computer mouse, also um, showcased the very first sort of desktop-based computer interfaces with you know, trash cans and files and folders. And that symbolic language we've ended up using uh, to, to make... Uh, our, uh, our communication with computers easier. Um, the the keyboard and mouse and the, the screen, uh, these things are now 60, almost 70 years out of date. Um, and we're on the cusp of a revolution whereby I think um, we've gone to voice. So we now have Siri and we have Google Now. We have these, you know, these voice uh, recognition systems um, and we have computers that speak to us. Uh, we have some layers of uh, machine intelligence trying to understand what it was saying with Alexa and those kind of things. Um, and then I think we also have um, uh, gestures. And now, you know, my, my PlayStation with my six-year-old son, um, it's got a camera on it. And when I uh, sit in front of it, it tries to track my face and see which player is playing. You know, it's doing that through uh, facial recognition. And um, and I think uh, gestures, obviously, you're going into the world of being able to use gestures. I mean, the, the ultimate gesture device has been the iPhone and the revolution of having touch screens. Um, and then the final sort of, uh, element to that, the, the final uh, upgrade, I think, is going to be the way we visualize data. So um, a lot of companies are, anybody, I think, anybody who's making an operating system, so the big, the big companies like Apple and Google and Microsoft, um, they are all fascinated by how we're going to use their, their operating systems. And their operating systems are going to be addressed through voice and gesture. And the final difference will be, I think, um, these display systems that will be worn on the eyes. So I think virtual reality is one thing, but with virtual reality, you're cocooned in a in a specific um, environment, and it's it's hazardous to your health because you unfortunately have a propensity to bump into things um, because you can't necessarily see your actual environment. Um, but these new mixed reality environments, I think, is going to be the real revolution, and I think we're on the cusp of these big companies launching glasses, uh, and to greater or lesser degrees, they're going to hopefully look a lot like normal spectacles. Because I think uh, people won't necessarily want to adopt them if they look too much like they're from too far from the future, or they look like uh, you know F F fifteen fighter pilots. But I think these glasses these glasses are going to make a difference to the way we perceive information and we communicate. And I think from a musical point of view, to get back um, into the flow of that, as an artist, um, I think you're going to be able to create a virtual version of yourself and a hologram of yourself. It's very on vogue at the moment. Everybody's making holograms of themselves. And so you make a 3D embodiment of yourself, you create an articulated model, um, and, and this thing is going to be able to um, materialize, and it's going to be able to come into my contemporary space. And I think this is where the third space theory is quite interesting. I mean, I, I originally played around with that name because at first it was actually just a joke around NASA and ESA. And I thought, well, if the first space agency was NASA and the second space agency was ESA, well, I'm going to be the third space agency. I'm going to transmit people and things into this, this new ethereal realm of, you know, what I saw at the time was second life, but I could easily imagine being, you know, a new way of communicating.
Um, but then if you actually go into third space theory, which is um, it's kind of like a, it's actually kind of a bit of a Marxist uh, uh, idea, which is this idea of um, a symbolic and uh, object-based uh, um, environment where uh, sort of an ontological difference in how we perceive and, and, and respond to each other is created. Um, I see the world of the future getting away from desktops, getting away from apps and screens, and getting away from information from a textual sort of HTML World Wide Web version, and into probably, uh, in some ways, almost like an imminent, kind of almost quasi-spiritual thing where I think there'll be objects. And I think objects, uh, there's a thing called uh, uh, the ontology of objects, uh, an ontology object-based sort of framework, where you have the significance of something in front of you and, and it's loaded with meaning. And, and we, we, we do that every day of our lives. You know, the, the fact that we see these objects around us, whether they're religious or, uh, or manifest logos or, or, or designs like, you know, Coke bottles or whatever. But I think what's going to be really fascinating with these on-eye uh, devices is, uh, um, you know, connected with the, the, the cloud, you know, whatever that is, um, connected with uh, uh, ourselves uh, collectively, I think um, the way information is, 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 is depicted and the way entertainment is consumed and the way conversations like you and I are having uh, is, is manifested is going to change profoundly because uh, once you can fool the brain and the eye into, into mixing um, a digital narrative with your contextual, you know, physical environment, that's, that's really going to change the game, I think, profoundly. Yeah, it's funny because you, you hear of VR, for example, being used to treat you know, post-traumatic stress disorder and various types of mental illnesses. And yes. you, you can see it. Like, I mean, if you, if you think of stuff like um, visualization. So I, I remember once there was a, a, a test done between groups of players. One, they were shooting hoops, basically playing basketball. And yeah. There was ones who visualized before they shot the hoops there was ones that visualized but didn't actually practice at all. And then there were some that just sh shot hoops. And the ones that visualized and shot outscored everyone else when they came down to the competition. And, and I, yeah. that dawned on me that, I mean, this using this technology and mixing it with real world or real world narrative or even implanting almost thoughts or experiences can lead, like you say, to tricking the brain into believing it's it, it's done something. I find that so interesting. Of what what's that going to open up in the world? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting as you say. I, my son is six years old, Arlo, and uh, I, I use one of those three sixty cameras you can buy from Amazon. One of those three sixty Ricoh cameras um, to take some pictures of me and him. And we were throwing, uh, um, uh, you know, we were throwing balls at each other and playing games. And I was taking pictures. And I just thought, how interesting to be him because I had these bubble photographs, uh, and, I, and now you can do bubble video, um, these 360 bubbles. And I thought, how interesting to be him because by the time he gets to my age, instead of just my, my memories of my childhood are littered with some uh, photo albums my mother left behind, and um, some, you know, she used to give wisecrack remarks underneath these pictures of me in my shorts and going to school. So uh, with him, though, he's going to be able to inhabit a 360 bubble memory of me being him, uh, me being with him. And, uh, and, and how does that affect memory? And how does that affect your sense of self? Because if your entire life is trapped to a point where you're able, almost matrix style, uh, to jump into a memory and to relive that moment, um, th th then that's very interesting because that's non-linearity. And memories are quite, you know, we, 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 uh, we, we uh, 
spiritualized in a linear fashion. And um, uh, but it feels to me like the linearity of things is, is being atomized, and, and all that's changing. And I and I think also again, the and one of the other artists I'm working with at the moment is a, a lady called Marina Abramovich, a very famous um, uh, uh, performance artist. And uh, Marina is very interested in, in in what is presence and what is uh, what, what am I? Where am I? Where I'm in this space? And we've had these conversations about you know holograms and and performance art and, and physicality her, her art form is very physical very uh, demonstrably uh, in your in, in you know present and um and she is also toying around with these ideas of you know what is what is the future going to hold if we're as an artist talking to my to, to an audience uh, if i'm not physically there but i'm there's light there's photonics there's photons of me and there's a sound of me and it looks to all intents and purposes like I'm there. But what, how does that change people's perception and response to who I am and what I'm doing? Um, I, I think these questions aren't new, though. I think they, they're new-ish. But I think it must have been just as profound to pick up a telephone for the very first time and to listen to another voice that was considerable distance away speaking to you. I think that must have had a profound effect on our consciousness. And I think it's the same for television. I think the, the first time somebody was able to transmit a picture uh, from one space to another, and for you to be able to watch that on a t- two-dimensional screen, that must have been just as profound. And I, I feel that a uh, hundred years have passed since you know the real uh, popularization of things like recording devices, like you know the the radiogram and, uh, and, and the telephone, and, and and then later in the twenties and thirties, you know, thirties television. It feels to me like we're on the cusp of something quite as probably as profound a shift as those things were, because it felt to me like the 20th century accelerated at a crazy rate. And I think that was as a result of the, the communications technology we developed at that time. And I feel that we are just the, the, the legacy, we're, we're holding the legacy of that in our hands and saying, well, it, it was two dimensional, it was stereo, now it's gonna be um, four dimensional, five dimensional, and it's gonna be 360, you know? And it feels to me a natural progression, not an unnatural one. Yeah, um, really. That's really interesting. I was just, I was just thinking of something maybe to wrap it up, Andrew. I was thinking about Arlo, right? So you mentioned how how interesting it is for him. So if we fast forward to him, and you know, ho- hopefully he's he's on the beach with his son, with your grandson. Yeah. What what do you think will have changed? What will he be looking back on progressions? If you could name just a few things that you think will happen in that period of time. Uh, I think it'll be uh, fascinating to to see uh, how knowledge is acquired and how relationship. I think I think the, the fundamental human thing of communicating is the thing that we we love uh, and use technology for the most. So uh, from SMS, you know, I love the oh, that old story about SMS on mobile phones. A bunch of engineers threw SMS in as a feature they only used to test phones, and then suddenly it became this thing we couldn't live without. You know, because we all want to communicate. Um, and it's the same with things like Skype calls and and um, and ironically, you know, even things like podcasts and, and the radio is still uh, surmounting a lot of other elements and media because um, the radio uh, is still something you can do whilst doing other things. Oh, sorry, my phone is going off. No worries, man. Um, SMS hears you, man. The phone hears exactly. you. Exactly. <laughs> um, but, but I think uh, I think in my son, if I was to pitch my son. Um, and to, 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 to what extent uh, he will be affected by what's going on at the moment. I think computers are disappearing. I think, uh, I think the big boxy, uh, you know, originally room scale, then desktop size, now in the palm of your hand, getting smaller and smaller. Um, I think the cloud is changing the way computers work to the point where we will 
eventually not really see them. There, there won't be any physical beyond maybe an earpiece or maybe even something uh, physically uh, augmenting your body. I think computers will disappear in, in the greater or lesser degree. Um, I think Gene Roddenberry's ideas of Star Trek, where there's just a voice, um, there will be just this voice with you, um, which is very interesting because it's kind of almost kind of old Old Testament, you know, the idea of this voice yeah. uh, <laughs> speaking to you and having knowledge. Um, and I think my son will be in a position where um, as he thinks of things and as he wants to communicate, he will have a, a, a profound ability to, to fold space-time uh, and distance uh, and he will have a profound ability to call upon the hive mind and, and the, the, the collective um, uh, consciousness of, of, of pretty much, I imagine, everybody on the planet at some point. There will, I mean, it's all right talking about singularities and Kurzweil and stuff, but I do think um, the way we learn, the way we communicate will be the two most profoundly changed things by these new technological innovations. Brilliant, man. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And you're so well placed. You are one of the guys on the avant-garde of this revolution and in music in particular, which is your obviously your, your original love. It's great to see, Andrew. And wh where can people find you to follow you on Twitter, etc.? Uh, well, I tweet at the moment under Von Melchior, which is a sign of my guilty German past, V-O-N-M-E-L-C-H-I-O-R. <laughs> Um, my website is third space, uh, T-H-I-R-D-S-P-A-C-E dot co. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I tend to lurk and uh, to write under those uh, under those guises so they can check out what I'm thinking about doing there. Well, brilliant, man. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Andrew Melchior, CEO and founder of thirdspace.co. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Aidan. So now on the Innovation Show, it's an honor to welcome Andrea Wade, CEO and founder of Opening.io. Welcome to the show, Andrea. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. So let, let's go into your background because you have a really interesting background and we have Andrew Melchior also on the show. And I just found the two of you guys really interesting in that your diverse backgrounds where you have almost like a traditional media element to, to your whole your whole mix and Andrew was the same with music and that was his kind of founding element but technology mixed with that founding element led mm. to something beautiful and we see this constantly with founders so it'd be great to hear your story Andrea. Where do I start? It's a long story <laughs> but basically yeah my background is pretty much in everything from journalism to music as well so i organized really big festivals uh, back in transylvania where we had artists coming from all over the world um within media like i worked in tv and radio and then i was the senior editor of an advertising magazine i wrote my first article when i was 16 um i organized my first event ever when i was 11 uh, and all the neighborhood kids um, uh, came and it was some kind of a fashion show, which is weird because I don't really, I'm not into fashion, but for some reason, that's the first thing that I did. You just smelled the money, Andre. <laughs> <laughs> Even I, at that age. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. I just, I just think of ideas and then I go, somebody should do that. And then I talk to people and I tell them, you know, somebody should do that. And then I just go, yeah, well, hmm, so maybe I should do that. And then things just happen. So background of, yeah, media, journalism, I mean, post-communist Romania, I wanted to 
write about things. Uh, we were taught, and so I studied journalism amongst other things. And, and I remember this, this uh, one particular uh, professor who was a journalist um, who told us that you know the media is the watchdog of the society and all this and you know I was I was a teenager and whatnot and wanted to wanted to be just that I used to make my mom cry by telling her that I'm going to go and cover war zones and these kind of things I can still do that to her if I say it to her. I was either doing that or telling her that I'm going to join the Red Cross. Nice. Um, and I would then make her cry, and then yeah. Um, so so music, journalism, tech. Tech was always an interest. Uh, I started coding when I was sixteen. Actually, uh, it's just the school system back home uh, allows for it. So I studied computer science um, since I was geez, fifteen or something. Um, fifteen, sixteen. Uh, and then all that combined, um, a few years later, got me to open this one company called Brandalism, where we were building brands and uh, doing strategies or building platforms for startups or uh, bigger established companies. So um, that was interesting. And then I kind of got sick of um, helping other people build their products and their businesses and I got a little bit sick of teaching other people um, and I decided okay I'm going to do my own thing with a small break in between when I went into the independent as head of product and that was interesting going back kind of to my roots to um, you know independent.ie uh, or INM independent news and media the largest trust uh, media trust in Ireland so that was so that was interesting but um, I think two months into that um, I was already half there working on opening that I without saying it to anyone um, so yeah I always did things I guess if that makes sense it's difficult for people like me to work for other people so you're constantly searching for the next new thing to do that's really interesting, that piece, Andrea, because you, you must often get frustrated because I, I, I talk to a lot of people in with the same type of mindset as you, and I always find they're almost apologetic for that, which is the kind of, I, I don't like the status quo or I don't like how it's done. And you honestly do try to change it from within, and then you discover this is a brick wall that I can't break through. I'm actually better off just leaving and going and doing it myself. And and I do believe like, yeah, massive amount of bravery on your side, but you know, you, you're in a way you're the lucky one as well, you know? And I know you, it, some days I'm sure on your side as an entrepreneur, you're kind of saying I had it easy, you know, when you're protected and you're guaranteed a wage every month. But in a way, you know, people, I'd say a lot of people in roles are looking at, at people like you kind of going, you know, I wish I had. I wish I had the the guts to do that. Yeah, you know, it's it's a weird one. Like, if if you are in that role where money is just coming in into your bank account at the end of every of of each month, and you know, you have insurance, and you might have a pension, and you have whatever, and and that's there, that's 
not a bad place to be in, but you look, you know, across the fence and you kind of go, oh, I wish I was my own boss. I wish uh, nobody could tell me what to do and I wish I could blah, blah, blah. Um, and then you go and you do it and it's the hardest thing and it will break you every single day. Uh, but then, you know, you could, you could um, be an entrepreneur, I suppose, and, and build your own thing and need to be a hundred people in one because you need to know about everything and, and you can look back at your previous life if you had it or other people, your friends who are getting promoted and they're getting stock options and they're like yeah Andrea I can buy a house in the next three years I just need to stick with this multinational and you go it's not it's it's tough and consuming either way I suppose but I don't know I can't I don't know how to do the other side anymore the bureaucratic side i'm sure that happens in 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 the same way that so many people get institutionalized and you know Mm. grow into the politics or the bureaucracy you know entrepreneurs are the opposite And, and i often think about this it's it's like the maturity level of a company where you go and you start up and it's the buzz and the sawdust on the floor that mindset versus you're at the top of the S curve of a company or at the growth or the, at the lean stage where they're leaning it out and every process is meticulously designed and there's no, don't go outside the lines because if you do that, you cost us a, a point a fraction of our percentage at the end of the year in our, in our EBITDA. And there, it takes two different types of people to do those different stages of a company. Mm. Yeah, you're right. I'm very good at starting things off. Um, my past is all in starting things off and getting people to adopt them. Um, not so much in sticking uh, with it for the long term. So this is my new challenge. I want to build this and I want to lead it for as long as possible. I want to learn all these things. I want to learn how to increase sorry, by whatever X percent. Um, and it's kind of boring in a way it could be because it's you know some people do get excited about starting new things and and they have this crazy wish of a power or whatever that they just make it happen and 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 then they let let go because it's not new anymore um but i suppose it's weird it's nearly when you start your own thing you have to unlearn the processes that you might have learned in in a, a role that you had within an entity that wasn't yours necessarily, but then in a weird way, you have to relearn them once your company starts to grow and once it just becomes just another company, yeah. just that this time you own it. So I, I was actually, I had a conversation today with... Um, someone who's uh, helping out with our financials, like a a CFO as a service, if you wish. And I was telling him that all, it it seems that all I do these days, I live in templates and applications and and business plans and financial projections. And it, it, it just, it just seems that all I do is I fill out 
forms and he's like yeah welcome welcome to the world of the ceo and i'm like ah oh. um so it's 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 a weird one but at the same time you do control the destiny of of your company so um you do take part in in envisioning what's next um so you do get to dream and then sort of put that into reality so it's yeah, yeah. Do you know? Do you know what we we actually haven't actually told our audience what what you do? So you mentioned while you were in independent news and media, you had this seed of an idea and you started to grow it. Then, but but what 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 was it that sparked it? And and what is opening AO? I suppose let's tell our audience that. Yeah, I suppose we should, right? <laughs> <laughs> Talking about all these, I could I could be doing anything. I could be growing mushrooms the in chocolate or something. Chocolate teapots. <laughs> Opening.ie is chocolate teapots. <laughs> They're not selling very well. <laughs> Please buy our chocolate teapots. They're delicious and pretty. And they do not melt. Um, anyway, um, yeah, so... <laughs> At opening.io, we match people to jobs. We have algorithms that match people to jobs. So we are a science-first company uh, that applies AI within recruitment. Essentially, we build a recommender engine, much like, say, Netflix or Spotify or YouTube have built recommender engines for films or music. We have an engine that recommends CVs. Um, the idea, the idea actually belongs to my co-founder, um, Adrian. Uh, Adrian and I were, were talking for a long time. He moved here. So I've been here 15 years, but I'm from Transylvania, Romania, uh, from a town called Brasov. And Adrian is from there as well. And he came here about four years ago. But we know each other since we were teenagers. We used to go to each other's events and stuff like that. And... He he went through a through an exit. Um, a company that him and his friends built went from three to seventy people and was sold into New York. They were almost bought by Apple, but then something happened. A new CEO arrived, and it didn't quite happen. So they were, but they were bought by someone else. But uh, yeah, they did grew the business. They sold it and all this. Adrian uh, won the programming Olympiad in, in Romania uh, a good few years ago, you know, so he came uh, number one, first place, blah, blah. Um, so he had a really solid CV. And then one day he decided, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm going to move away from Romania. I'm going to go somewhere. And he sent his CVs, a few applications uh, sent into Dublin and a few into San Francisco. Long story short, he gets three offers, both from Dublin and from San Francisco, but he waits six months. And the company he ended up joining had his CV months before he was rediscovered by uh, an external agent and placed for a five-figure finder's fee. So it just that frustration because we the thing is we're in recruitment and I'm actually I'm speaking at a thing um uh this Friday um the first Friday in May whatever date that's going to be um and and I was thinking what what am I going to say and and I was like I'm gonna ask the audience is there anyone in, in the audience who has uh you know ever applied for a job and obviously everybody has it's like asking someone um is there anyone in the audience that is immortal or that will never die we all went through that so we build this from the candidate's perspective um finding you know once you're looking for employment it's one of the most stressful times uh 
in your life ever it's like moving or worse or something so we we came at this problem from the candidate's perspective going this thing doesn't work um can we can we solve it and again no background in recruitment but we knew tech i suppose ai and product and we've built things before we knew that we can learn really quickly so that's what we did and in the last two and a half three years we learned a lot about the recruitment space um and we built something really solid so that's what we do today algorithms matching people to jobs that's brilliant uh, you know i didn't i didn't realize that before what you were saying about i didn't realize the story i didn't hear it before about adrian because mm-hmm. it reminds me of what used to happen when i was playing professional rugby where it, agents used to move players so they wouldn't necessarily act on the behalf of the player to move that player to the right type of club or right type of culture or playing style that would suit that player. Instead, they would try and move a player out of that club and then replace a player back in because then they get two fees. Do you know? Do you know what I mean? Like this is the kind yeah. of and and I actually I didn't realize that was happening until I got out of out of rugby and I I witnessed this type of you know behavior and i'm not saying it doesn't happen all the time but it happens for sure because mm. it, it everybody's concerned about their own bottom line so and their own bonus and, and whatever incentive they have in place but it really yeah. makes sense so so you in a way yourself and adrian sat down you went these are the, this is our hate list of all the stuff we hate about this industry and how are we going to fix it yep that's pretty much it to be honest yeah. <laughs> it's just that i wouldn't say that publicly <laughs> I, I know well that's my job into that industry. <laughs> <laughs> my job is to say that for you I, I'm, I'm just translating it's your it's your it's your broken uh it's your broken transylvanian english and i'm just translating it well for you, <laughs> oh, thank you. i have an AI, i have an ai that does this for me i'm just reading what it's saying to me here <laughs> Yep, it's a pretty smart AI who gets the <laughs> underlining truth about the, things. The gist. Well, that's that's the that's the underlying theme of the show, anyway. But so, Andrea, like, I don't want to give away the secret sauce, but it it it's looking at it looks at way more than keywords. It is more than keywords. We we don't do like keyword mining. We we do concept mining. So we understand concepts. So the algorithms don't need to know a specific word. They will understand what you're trying to find what you're talking about so it's like if you would be looking for a sun holiday and you don't have to write down a sun holiday you could write down beach and palm tree or something and we will figure out that that's what you want so that's that's kind of how it works but then yeah we do look at external data points uh, we never go to uh, find those if you don't have them in the cv we care deeply about privacy so we have a very strong stance on on that um, and data protection and all that so um we but if you do have a github link in your cv we go and we mine your github and we take samples of your code and we pull them into your profile and we take into account and uh, the languages that you know and so on we take screenshots of your portfolio um so we do a lot of that and that is actually uh, the bulk of work for the second half of the year we're raising a, a, a big 
round in the next three to six months. I'm actually formally starting fundraising in about 45 days. Um, and a lot of the uh, product work is going to be around that better understanding the candidate, better understanding you based on what else we can find online about you. But again, as long as you do have it um, in your CV, otherwise we're not gonna we're not gonna look at your not gonna mine your Twitter or Facebook and and draw conclusions about that. Cause uh, okay, I know I, I wasn't even going there. I didn't even think that way, yeah. but. Uh, one of the things I heard you speak before, and you mentioned a kind of an almost serendipitous event where you created this playground on your website, and it's become this kind of really nice feature to almost be a kind of a spider's web to bring people in to opening.io. Yeah, so we, we're very open. You know, you can create an account, you can go to opening.io uh, and you can just create an account. You don't even have to add, you know, your credit card, whatever, blah, blah, blah. You can go and look at the thing. You can spy our products. <laughs> we have presentations about our tech architecture and all that kind of stuff. So we decided also to kind of let you try the capabilities of the tech without using the product. So we created this thing called the play playground where you can go upload your CV pull in a, a job description and see how you match against it and we'll give you salary predictions for Ireland right now um, and we'll show you what else we we, we find about you um, just a note for those listening just in case they're going to go to opening.io and play in the playground um, we haven't updated it with the new tech in the last I think three or four months and since then we had two major upgrades so it's our so it's our it's on the to-do list to to upgrade the playground but it's been quite a cool feature that got people to get in there and play with the tech force some of them lost in there for half an hour or more uh, people that we've never met saying why does linkedin does not have this tech um people tweeting copying um the link to the playground and, and and tying in investors and media going this is really cool this is incredible so it's been it's 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 i just we think it's good to be open and yeah. it's to yeah because you're you're a, a prolific blogger as well i've read some of your blogs and they're fantastic and it's a great way to again kind of be the spider's web to to bring in people who of like-mindedness or similar interests to kind of connect them with yourself but i i thought that when i heard you talking about the playground and i checked it out this was a couple of months back i thought this is another great way you know you don't have to it doesn't have to be blogging because some people will go well i'm not very creative or i'm not a great writer but they could do things like this or create something on github or give something away for free or do a, a pro bono project i just thought that was a really interesting way and, and it, it wasn't designed that way from what i believe but you ju it just so happened that by doing it, something happened. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we're, we're, we're fans of good design. We're fans of playing with stuff. Um, Adrian, for example, he used to organize. So back in Romania 15 years ago, um, 
uh, back 15 years ago, kind of in many other countries, uh, there was this thing about the demo scene. So there was there were demo scenes everywhere and you would develop music or games or whatever. So Adrian um, organized for about seven years this thing called Dracula PC Party. And it would be whatever, three days or more. No Wi-Fi back then, big clunky computers, <laughs> thousands of people together for 72 hours or whatever building cool stuff so some of those demo scene kind of influences and, and whatnot they're still found in the way we do things i mean even on our home page we have some crazy completely unnecessary design with clouds and people moving and things and and uh, completely unnecessary you know but we do we 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 do like to do things different yeah. Isn't that key, though? I, I just think that, you know, people expect things to happen and they don't actually make the first move. And it always reminds me of that story about the guy who's praying to God for, to win the lotto all the time. And he does it every night for months on the end. And then God appears to him and goes, give me a break, buy a lotto ticket. Like, you got, you actually got to do something here to actually make something happen on the reverse action. And you find so many people, and they're often the complainers that are going... Oh, nothing happens for me, and you're gonna come. With, you know, you gotta put yourself in the game. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I have friends like that. I have people close to me that I love that are like that, and you wanna just kick them up the butt or something. <laughs> you know, you have to. You have to do things. You have to be uncomfortable. You have to. Whatever, nothing happens just because you want them to. Yeah. That's not things work. So, so one thing I wanted to ask you because I, I didn't I didn't really nail this down was so the way the product works is I'm just trying to think of a use case so I'm am I am I a, a business owner and I want to have maybe a career section of my site and and I use opening.io as a plugin is that is that how it works just to explain that to our audience okay so that 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 that's one way how it works. But let's say you could be, let's say you're a multinational, right? Because uh, to be honest, we're targeting big uh, entities. You're a multinational and you have a thing called an ATS, an applicant tracking system. And in there, you might have 50,000 CVs or 20,000 CVs or there's someone that we're working with right now. They have 1.2 million CVs. And you do a search and you input iOS developer and you get back 20,000 results or 10,000 or 5,000 or even 400. And you go, who the heck do I call first? So this is what we do. We sort, we sift through CVs and we're telling you, fine, you have 1.2 million CVs and you have 20,000 iOS developers. How about you talk to these 10 first? And that's that's pretty much what we do. We, we plug in into existing databases or your career page um, and we make sense of your of your resumes. We can match people to jobs. We also match people to people. Say you hired me and you want another Andrea and you go, I'm gonna take her CV put it into the engine and I'm going to find someone else with these skills. Or you go, we have 50 data scientists. Who is the best? Or we have 500 data scientists. 
who are the top three because we just have a new project uh, opening in, in, in Cork and we need to send some people there for three months. Who do we send? Um, these are the use cases. Uh, there's another use case. We're talking now to a company that employ just over 120,000 people worldwide. With them, 75% of their hires are internal but they don't know who their own passive candidates are. So say I might be in a job and that company has a really cool new job going, but I don't really know of it. Um, so I'm working away. This software can just ping uh, the HR manager and go, Andrea is really suitable for, for this. So it's, it's the use cases. And then there's other use cases like job boards. We could plug into a big job board, your monsters, your job three or whoever, and do the matching automatically. We're trying to reduce everything at one click. Yeah, because that really makes sense to me. And because you hear a lot about oh AI replacing jobs, etc. But if I, if I'm thinking about this and I'm going, okay, I'm in this role and I need to uh, firstly discover similar candidates or a, a certain cohort of candidate profile. And and I'm tired and I've had a bad day or I've had a couple of late nights or the baby's been crying or whatever is is affecting me in my day job. Or it, maybe it's not at all. And I, I have to try and find some similarities between it. I can't do that as well as a machine because the machine is looking at similar data. But what I can do is if it gives me, out of, out of 1.2 million, it gives me 102 perfect CD, CVs or similar ones. Mm-hmm. Then it leaves the human skill of identifying the the, diff, the skills of grit or determination and 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 the the personality fit, the empathy, the EI and the EQ and all those different human skills. It leaves those for me as the human to the spot. I, and I I just often think that when I when I read first about opening.io, it was like this is what it does. It, it makes it takes away that kind of linear task for me. And leaves the really important choice for me, and and but and join those things together, and you have a really kick-ass recruiter. To be honest, in essence, what we what we do is we give you that long list or short list, and then you call those people today. So we powered a career a career fair in March, um, and there's whatever twenty big companies there, multinationals, and there's the same people that walked in, in in the door. So many of them have the same people in their database once the career fair ended. And we went in there and we did the matching and, and the people that used the tech first got to the right candidates first, made the call first and made the placement first as well, because we're all fighting for these good people. So the key is to get to that short list or long list faster it's always about that brilliant well andrea perhaps funders might want to get in touch or by email or twitter how can people reach you um so linkedin is one andrea wade i have two e's in my name so it's a-n-d-r-e-e-a wade <laughs> um twitter i do live on twitter but i'm not sure if I should send people to my, <laughs> to my Twitter because it's a bit nuts, but uh, I don't care to be honest. So it's Brandalisms on Twitter or Andrea. Don't forget to ease at opening.io. Brilliant. Okay. And people can get in touch because a lot of VCs do listen to the show. So you might get hopefully some bites through the show. So Andrea, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Andrea Wade, CEO and co-founder of opening.io. 
Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you.